how do we treat deep carious lesions? Is there a difference between the primary dentition and the permanent dentition? And what does the evidence say when we look at the recently published Cochrane review? These are things we're talking about in this podcast. It's a preparation for the 100th birthday of the GC Corporation and there will be a lecture as well on this topic. So please go to gcdentalcampus.com and register for this event. Have fun listening. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm connected here over the internet with Clarissa and Falk. Welcome to the show, you two. Really great that you joined me tonight. And you both have a lecture at the GC Online November Symposium about a really interesting topic, the deep carious lesion. You also already told me that there is a new Cochrane review on this topic. And maybe you can tell me or you can tell all the listeners who have not read this review, what are the key points we have to know? Yeah, thanks, Georg. I think, well, first, the, the main key point is that there's basically nearly no indication any longer, especially for deep lesions in teeth with a vital pulp, to do what we were taught for 100 years, to do complete or non-selective carous removal. That is, I think, something which is very clear and coming out of the review for deep lesions. Don't do full removal of all carious tissue. Try to be conservative, try to maintain tissue using stepwise or selective removal or in the primary dentition, for example, the whole technique. I know the whole technique. I never practiced this because it's, uh, I barely treat children. I think it's quite effective as a technique, Chrissa. Yeah, that's indeed. Thank you for the invitation uh, for this podcast. It's very nice to be here. I, the whole technique is indeed very effective and much more effective than the traditional uh, treatment that we used to do with complete carriage removal and restoration. And by the whole technique, you don't need to remove any carries. You just place a crown, a stainless steel crown, on the, on the top of the tooth, and you cement it with a glycinomer cement. So you close the cavity, and there's no carries progression And there is, uh, if you follow the indications, there is also a very high success. And it's around 97% of success in a range of one to five years. I have stainless steel crowns in my office, but we probably have to, before we can just demand it directly on this highly carelessly teeth, there probably has to be some pre-work. Can you kind of walk us through what you do before you do the whole technique? Sure. There's no tooth preparation. What you do is that sometimes you have to make space for the crown. And to make space for the crown, you place this uh, separation elastics that are these orthodontic elastics. And you place them around the contact points. So if you have a six, um, a permanent molar, then you place it distally of the five, for example, and visually of the five when you want to place the crown on a five, on the second primary molar. And you leave this elastic band there for one day up to a, a week, uh, depending on the, the strength of this contact point. When you remove it, you have an, enough space for the crown. And then you have to choose the best size of the crown 
And sometimes you do have to cut a little bit of the borders just to uh, make it easier to fit. And when you feel that this crown fits on the tooth, you don't need to push it completely because you know already that it, this is the good size. And if you push it completely, sometimes it's difficult to remove. Uh, if that happens, then you use an excavator and from lingua to, um, to uh, occluso, you can do it, you can remove it. But it's not always necessary. And then you fill the crown with a glycinomer cement, with a conventional one, so not a resin-modified one. And you place the crown and you push it, or you ask the child to bite on a cotton roll. And for about two minutes, then you remove the excess of the cement and your treatment is done. That's kind of great. Actually, I tried that one time and kind of the part where I had to place the orthodontic retainer was not very successful. Oh, it was painful. Was it painful or was it too difficult? Well, I kind of had a, tri a, a trick that I have to use two pliers and to uh, place it into this contact point. But actually, I didn't succeed at all. My orthodontist told me that there is a special forceps for that but i don't have it do you recommend this kind of forceps not really <laughs> to make it more child friendly what we do is that we have two pieces of dental floss okay and then when you have these two pieces of dental floss in the elastic band you just pull them apart and then the elastic will be flat and you can go underneath the contact point only using the floss so you bring the band underneath the contact point using the one of the sides of the floss, and then you will bring it up, pulling up one of the sides of the floss, and then it will be around the contact point, the elastic band. This is easier than pushing it down. Okay. Because the elastic normally is thicker than the contact point, and that's the entire meaning that you want to make a space there. So pulling up is easier than pushing down. I just read a lot about the whole technique because I think this is actually in children a very, very interesting treatment option, but um, I haven't used it yet so far. <laughs> it's quite a pity. Yeah, you should try. It's uh, maybe the first time you find it a bit weird, but it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's well accepted by the children as well. I mean, I asked you uh, just a second ago about the pain because... In one of the studies that we did using the whole technique, it was reported that the children found it a little bit painful, the elastic. So they find it a little bit uncomfortable having the elastic. And, but the, the treatment itself, not having to, to have an anesthesia and not using rubber dam and not preparing the tooth with a burr and only placing the crown there, it's very quick treatment. So you, you have a very short time that you need. And it's very successful, so the children like it. It's survival, so the, it stays there for a long time. Yeah, I think it's uh, definitely uh, the, treat the treatment for cavities in primary teeth. Falk, are you treating any children anymore, or you basically moved to permanent addition forever? <laughs> I never say never. It's not a lot of children. I see children, mainly of children of friends and, and family and so on. And, and sometimes I treat them. So, for example, I have a, a friend's daughter who has 
um, or had an active carries lesion on one of the primary molars. And what we did that we didn't use the whole technique. We used another strategy, which was also discussed in the review and systematically assessed, which is called the non-restorative cavity control technique, where you are basically slicing up the interdental area where there's the carious lesion. You're opening up the lesion by that way and thereby make it accessible. And then you train and educate the parents to brush regularly. And you can also apply in office fluoride varnish, for example. And, and thereby you can, at least in theory, arrest the lesions. And that's what we did for that for that uh, child and I think I mean she's due in the next weeks um, but she is I think she will lose the tooth now I, I, very soon I don't know the exact age but we said okay six more months to go and then it will be gone so hopefully it is gone soon so it's it's more something to get the tooth over the line but um, for her it worked if we look at the data in the review there are at least doubts let's say that way and I think the main issue is it's highly dependent on the compliance of the parents you can open it up you can make it cleansable, but if then nobody brushes, same as before, then it doesn't work. And that's the biggest weakness. And that's why, at least in my belief, the whole technique is so superior because it doesn't doesn't at all um, depend on that compliance. Even in the contrast, it covers the whole tooth, even those areas which we are not carriers with a, a big stainless steel container so that that tooth can never ever become carriers again, even on the other surfaces. So something we at least here in Germany we we were taught not me but other people were taught in the 50s and 60s and 70s the so-called protection crown I think that idea we abandoned it for the permanent tissue because it's nonsense there of course but here for the whole technique it seems to work out and otherwise to come back to your question I I'm mainly treating permanent teeth yes I don't want to talk too much about stainless steel crowns and everything, but do you have a rule of thumb, Clarissa, which uh, tooth should get which size of crown or is it the experience thing? Uh, when you use crowns, you uh, have the ones made for the primary, the right primary, the left primary, upper primary. The one, so they are made for each tooth, the D4 and the, uh, the E5, uh, this kind of stuff. But sometimes they don't fit. Sometimes you have uh, children with too big teeth and then you have to choose another one and be creative. But how to choose a crown, It's you, you look at the size of the tooth and you look at the size of the crown and that's um, a little bit of trying and maybe you try two or three the first time and then after that you, you know a bit more. So we can say it's try and error and experience. Yeah, but it's not so difficult. Yeah, <laughs> just try it. <laughs> Let's move more to the permanent dentition, basically. You both are treating the permanent dentition. I have to admit, I personally haven't read the review yet, but I'm not so on the side of we don't need, or let's say it, but just selective carriers removal is enough yeah how would you convince me because for example when i say maybe this carriers is kind of irritating still irritating the pulp how would you convince me to kind of consider this kind of treatment yeah that's a good question and i think it's a fair question and coming from a mainly endodontically driven person it's even an expected question so <laughs> let me let me try to um, maybe come back to a number of points first of all how would i convince you i would i would show you the data and um, by showing you the data, I can at least show you that it's not one study. It's always a number of studies from all over the world in very heterogeneous conditions showing exactly the same story. There's not a single study showing something different. In the optimal case for the non-selective, so the complete removal, 
And you could say it doesn't make a difference to do it or to not do it. We see this, for example, for non-deep lesions, so for the rather shallow ones where you don't have the risk of pulpal damage there. It's it's probably okay to do either that or do it selective or I wouldn't do stepwise because it's just an effort there, but to, to do non-selective or selective because the pulp is not at risk. But if you go close to the pulp, then we certainly see the data that these techniques clinically work. Second of all, what else would I show you or tell you? This is something which also people from the other side of the river, from the endodontic village, basically, and not the karyological village, have understood, at least here in Europe. If I look at the statement of the European Society of Endodontics, they are very, very forthcoming and open for these less invasive strategies and very positive about them. And the only ones where we don't see it are the American endodontists, which is interesting because that even led to a statement of the European endodontist just about a week old, criticizing that and discussing if this is not something where the different professions in dentistry could come to one single conclusion, because of course, for the practitioner, it's absolutely nuts if a cariologist and the European endodontist say, do selective and stepwise, and the American endodontist say, don't do it, and all use the same data. That's That's pretty confusing. Why are some people like maybe the American endodontist and maybe also yourself, because you just made the same argument, why are they at least cautious, which is absolutely fine. Being cautious is a good thing. It is because of these histological studies you're citing. And the main thing which people are always coming back to is a single study, which is about two and a half, three years old, where they cut, I think it was 12 teeth after some weeks after selective removal. So where people left carious tissue close to the pulp. And these teeth were deemed for extraction anyway. So they said, well, well, we just do selective removal. And then some weeks later, we take them out and we cut them into pieces and we check the pulp. And there they found inflammation. And then I must say, well, what did you expect? Of course, you find inflammation. You also find inflammation beneath the direct pulp capping. You find inflammation beneath most uh, restorative materials. And you even find inflammation at the tip of the root, at the apex, in the bone, when you do a root canal filling. So... Some kind of inflammation is probably the normal form of the body of dealing with these kind of injuries and harms. And at the end, what is important to me is how does it work clinically? I'm not treating pulpal cells, I'm treating the human being. If I look at these data, then it's very, very strong. So if I need to decide, do I make my argument based on 12 extracted teeth or do I make it on, I think it was more than several thousands of treated children and adults in these studies in the Cochrane Review, then I would rather choose letter side and go with the less invasive removal. I hope I convinced you. Well, it's not that easy, Falk, you know that. <laughs> Because since your topic is deep carrier's lesions, and I mean, every dentist has something in mind, a patient with a deep carrier's lesions. Could these deep carrier's lesions be excluded from the data? What do you mean excluded? Why, why well, would we exclude them? The, this review is mainly on, or at least these studies focusing on selective and stepwise removal. Of course, they mainly dealt with deep lesions, not with the non-deep ones. Hmm. Because I, I would agree with you if you say, why should I do it for a shallow lesion? Why can't hmm. I, to say it very, very simple, why can't I clean it properly? Well, there I would say, well, yes, right, clean it properly and then do a nice filling. But for the deep lesions, we always have the debate around the pulp. And I think that's why these techniques are also more successful there because they are not harming the pulp. No, I'm kind of aiming on, I mean, for example, when I read the Björndal study, I think there are some 
pictures included, which what was included in the study and what was excluded in the study, uh, some x-ray pictures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I'm kind of asking, uh, when you're doing a review, you probably have some definitions for what is a deep carious lesion. Probably, for example, it's close one, uh, for example, one meter close to the pulp. Uh, is there, uh, so what's the definition for a deep lesion in yeah. your... There, there, are there are different definitions. One, the most commonly used one is it's in the inner third radiographically extended into the inner third of the dentin which of course is only arbitrary because it's a 2d radiograph and you don't know where it really sits another definition and that's more focusing on the very deep lesions that's the one last Bjørndal is using is in the inner quarter of the pulp and then there is there is that kind of additional let's say warning sign that at least some studies use that there should always be a, a continuous band of radiodense dentine above the pulp, so separating the carious lesion from the pulpal tissue, because otherwise, if you have the radiographic impression, the pulp is directly already in contact with the carious tissue, there could be an issue. Although, as I said, it's only a 2D radiograph, so I would be a bit careful there. Chris, how do you convince the dentists, like apart from the literature? <laughs> well, I would convince you from a cariology point of view that uh, caries is actually... Um, a disease but a dysbiosis so there is like a, a collapse in the ecosystem of the mouth and what you need to do is actually to bring it to a healthy uh, oral ecosystem and how do you do that by keeping it clean uh, but do you need to remove them oh no you need to remove them until you can place a restoration and that's why for shallow lesions sometimes we do need to remove completely because otherwise we don't have enough space for our restorative material and then it can break the restoration but for deep lesions you want to keep the tooth still alive so that's actually your main goal and keeping the tooth alive can be combined with selective excavation where there is some bacteria left behind but they will die they won't have access to food anymore, being very simple. And then your ecosystem will be uh, reestablished in a healthy oral ecosystem. Not sure if I could convince you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a long process. I mean, the thing is, at the beginning, I kind of really liked the idea, but I also had failures where I kind of thought, maybe if I would have removed more, maybe it wouldn't have been a failure. Of course, we don't know that. But how would you, how do you treat your failures? Because every dentist has failures, uh, I would guess. Uh, how do you manage these failures? I mean, the whole technique is basically nearly 100%. We don't have failures here. But uh, in permanent addition, when you treat patients every way you want, endodontic, uh, complete removals, selective removal, you always have a, a certain uh, failure probably. So for example... Of course, you have failures. And I I think, especially for the deep lesions, these will be either uh, endodontically, as you, as you indicate. And if that happens... And it, it does happen. I fully agree. even in studies it happens, and of course it also happens in clinical routine, because it's this is not a it's it's not magic. It's one treatment option, and better at least the data say so than alternative treatment options. And it's as Clarissa said, it's grounded in in biology. 
So it has some biological plausibility that it works. But nevertheless, sometimes it doesn't work. And that can be, for example, because our pulpit diagnostics are just not very good. I mean, what are we doing? We are we are looking at the radiograph, as I said, hoping that there's some layer separating the pulp from the carious tissue. And then we are putting something cold or hot on the tooth and poking around a little bit. And then we think we understood the, the pulp, which, of course, we don't. It would be crazy to assume that. So I think that's one of the reasons that whatever you do to such teeth to maintain the vitality, in some cases, you will not be successful. And then you need to do the endodontic treatment. But that's, on the other hand, also the beauty about it. You can still do endodontic treatment. You do not lose that option. And that's where I, I have a problem with, with being overly invasive in the first step that if you say well i don't like to take that risk i'm going all in either with non-selective removal or there are even some dentists out there we know this from from surveys also here in germany who say well for deep lesions i always do endo treatment right away because that's that works well also for endodontic treatments we have sa same we have failure rates and then you lost another treatment option already because you used it right in the first place so I'm always with my patients as, as careful and cautious as I can be and as needed. And if I have failures, then I can still go one more one more step onto the ladder and escalate it a little bit, which is absolutely fine. That's what dentistry is doing. And if we take all the steps in a stepwise way, then we can hopefully maintain the teeth for quite a long, long period of time. I think when it comes to children, you mainly want to avoid pain. You want to avoid that they become afraid of the dentist so that they develop a fear for the dentist. And that's why you choose also the minim most minimal invasive treatment as possible. And when you, what Falk just said, when you are in doubt because you don't see a dentine breach or because there are symptoms of irreversible uh, inflammation, then then you don't try this. Yeah? Then you then you you make your choice. But when you uh, when you see that there is still the possibility of of healing, then I, I wouldn't go uh, I wouldn't go straight to the most invasive treatment, giving an anesthesia and having a long a long treatment so that the child has to be for a long time in the chair. This can be just the start of. Um, of a, of a child that will be afraid of the dentist. And that's exactly what you want to avoid. For example, when the children is in pain and you kind of diagnose uh, your uh, irreversible papitis, what's, uh, what are your treatment options you choose in this uh, situation? Then you have to see about the behavior of these children. If the cooperation is enough, you can do a pulpectomy. And then it's like the root canal treatment for the primary tooth. If there is no cooperation, then your option is on the extraction. And this is a pity because both treatments are not comfortable and can lead to fear for the dentist. So we hope to be there before they are in pain. Are these the treatments you usually uh, do under general anesthesia? Do you also are able to manage this without any general anesthesia? Or sedation. Yeah, when a child comes in pain, you have to help uh, it normally at the same day. So uh, it's without general anesthesia. And uh, sometimes with sedation, sometimes with oral sedation, sometimes with um, nitrous oxide. But this all depends on the cooperation of the child, the age of the child, and, uh, and the procedure that needs to be done. 
So interesting. So you think both think that the future of deep caris treatment will be just selective and you don't see, uh, as you already stated in the beginning, no indication for anything else anymore. No, I wouldn't say that would be, would be sad, somehow disappointing, wouldn't it, if we say it's over now, everybody goes home. I think there's still a lot to do. And what we are, for example, doing in, in my department here is we just set up a large multi-center practice-based study where we compare selective removal versus popotomy because we say, well, maybe maybe it's not the fault of the non-selective removal. Maybe it's the fault of, if we do non-selective removal and open up the pulp of how we deal with the pulp, maybe direct capping is just not the thing. There, as you know, a number of studies showing that pulpotomy might be interesting and maybe that could be an, a very good alternative, maybe even better than the selective remo removal that we say, well, go in with non-selective. If you open up the pulp, no problem, do a pulpotomy. I'm very open for these things, but we need to investigate them. We need to show that this is really true. At the moment, we just don't know it. And at the moment, we know that selective and stepwise and whole, that they all work. And the second thing is, And that is also something which is sometimes forgotten. The, the beauty about selective and stepwise, maybe with Hall, it's a little bit different, but that's easy. Everybody can, can leave a little bit more carious tissue there. It's not, it's not complex to do technically and, and not hard to teach. And that is different with a pulpotomy, for example. I think this will be something where we will need to educate dentists very specifically on how to do a pulpotomy and permanent teeth. And that is already an implementation hurdle. And that's also something we need to consider. But... I think there's still lots to do and we'll still be on the topic in 10 years, hopefully, and hopefully also with some new insights and not all the same. Yeah, and if I may then um, jump on to say the whole technique is even easier. <laughs> It's, uh, we did a study with, uh, yeah, that's true. We did a study with an experienced pediatric dentist and, uh, and some final year students and they treated the children in schools and... They, did, they used the whole technique and they had both uh, very good uh, success rates in the end of the study because it's not really uh, operator dependent when the operator is trained. I mean, it's, they all got a, a training and it's not a very extensive training. It's just like one afternoon, one workshop and they all made it. So it's very easy. But Clarissa, from all the treating options you mentioned, you didn't mention the pulpotomy. Does it have a place in your office at all or do you think it doesn't have a place? That's a good question. I think the pulpotomy has a place and that's mainly for these lesions where you are still in doubt because the combination of the clinical signs and uh, pain sometimes and that you are still in doubt if you're leading with a reversible or irreversible pulp inflammation, then you, the pulpitis, then you are still there. And if you're treating the child in the chair, I mean, not under general anesthesia, and you have a good cooperation, then you go for a pulpotomy. When you are treating under general anesthesia, you're normally a little bit more severe in your decisions because there is a reason why this child is being treated under general anesthesia. Probably it's a child that's not treatable on the chair. And there you have to base your decisions much more on the x-rays. And there too, when you don't see a dentin breach, then you don't have a doubt and you do a pulpotomy or a pulpectomy or an extraction. And it's still depending on the size of the lesion and, uh, 
and the position of the tooth. So if it's a four or a five, how severe you can be. But there is there is for sure a room. But for example, in my pedo department 10 years ago, I basically learned basically the stainless steel crown in combination with pulpotomy has also success rates uh, over 90%. So I thought I learned the whole is still even a bit better than the, this approach. So therefore, I would guess you tend more to the whole technique. Yeah, there are different indications, eh? different indications for the pulpotomy and for only the whole technique. And the reason why we, put, we place a stainless steel crown after a pulpotomy is also because you have a big cavity and you make a big hole eh, to be able to make the pulpotomy. So you have a weak tooth underneath, then you want to protect it with the crown. And when you choose for it, it's actually because you cannot choose for the whole technique anymore. Okay. So it's, it's not comparable, I think. Actually, I think FALC is a study uh, you're working on comparing Popotomy with selected carries was really interesting for me. I'm kind of waiting on the results. Well, when do you think you will have these results? Two years, four years, five years? That's a good question. <laughs> At the moment, we are recruiting, and uh, we started about, I think it was about two, 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 three months ago. I don't remember exactly. And it's quite an ambitious study. So the first results, hopefully in two years, but that will be only very, very preliminary results, maybe only from the first step without any kind of follow-up. So, yeah, that's clinical research. It's just hard. It takes quite a while. That's why nobody wants to do it any longer. Um, but yeah, that's it, it will be some years from now. Do you think it would have potential to change the Cochrane review results if it favors pulpotomy? Well, if if it favored pulpotomy, then of course that would flow into the into the Cochrane review. But that's something we don't know. So at, at the moment, the Cochrane review stands as it is. These reviews they don't tend to be updated every year because it's just a hell lot of work. So. Um, I think we will have that as a reference for, for the next at least five years, I would guess, that Cochrane review with the data. Yeah. So I probably have to look up the review and put it in the show notes as well, since we talked so much about it. <laughs> so I really thank you for the time. I'm glad, Falk, that you mentioned the word palpotomy and not me. Well, uh, it, 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 this is. I think it's a. it would be very sad if we couldn't go out of our house or uh, academic house we build around ourselves by, by our work of the last decade and not build a new house in case there's something interesting. So I'm, I'm very open to, to these new things. But on the other hand, I have, I have my severe problems with people not accepting the not so new things like selective and stepwise removal, even if the data is there. So Yeah, I'm, I'm happily mentioning the popotomy. Maybe that's my way of convincing you, by the way. Maybe I mentioned popotomy and then I convince you to accept selective removal. Is that a deal? Well, we could agree on that <laughs> so far. See? So we have uh, some, perfect. some balance. <laughs> okay. Common ground. Excellent. Common ground. Okay, I see Clarissa is smiling a lot. That's great. <laughs> Too bad uh, we uh, don't record any video today. <laughs> I'm very happy because I'm just like, today was a general decision day that I didn't even have lunch. So I'm like this completely, like I can, I didn't expect any video. I just, it, the video is on on the laptop because I uh, didn't even realize. <laughs> But I'm not, I was not looking for you. I'm sorry. So uh, now I am. <laughs> 
it's okay. Just, like, you can thinking and looking around. Forgot that the video was on. <laughs> I mean, I think in Amsterdam you have a quite good food delivery, and I hope uh, it's <laughs> you can order something after this podcast. Oh, I I had lunch before uh, dinner before. I have uh, small children, so I uh, I eat with them uh, very early. <laughs> okay, I, I both thank you for the time, and I'm looking forward for your lecture online. So I just say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.